0: Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here. Welcome to the Gospel Rant. Uh, love the feedback that I'm getting on this important series on the Song of Songs. I said that 3,500 years of biblical scholarship, Jewish and Christian alike, has unfortunately treated this book, the Song of Songs, like that strange uncle that comes to Easter dinner. I mean, after all, they're family, but nobody wants to speak with them or sit with them. Oh my goodness. And we're the worst for it. The Song of Songs is the greatest gospel presentation in the Old Testament. I found a great article on it from myjewishlearning.com. So this is from a Jewish perspective. Check it out. It is the most ardent and extended biblical expression of God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God. It is perhaps for this reason that Rabbi Akiva famously declared the Song of Songs the most sacred of the books of the Tanakh, the Holy of Holies, he says. More than a thousand years later, the Zohar, Judaism's foremost mystical text, made the claim that the Song of Songs embodies the entire Torah. We can now see why it makes perfect sense to read the Song of Songs on Passover. The Saga of The exodus from Egypt and the subsequent revelation at Mount Sinai is reminiscent of a larger-than-life love affair, complete with forced separation at the hands of the villain, Pharaoh, gallant rescue, the exodus, and eventual marriage, entering into the covenant at Sinai. Isn't that interesting? Uh, And I've been saying this, is that the giving of the law at Sinai is, is similar to the marriage ketuvah, the covenant. It's a marriage between God and Israel, God and his people is that motif, that trope in the Old Testament. All right, back to the quote. In fact, read this way, the Exodus narrative, listen, becomes so romantic... Oh, I bet you didn't hear that in Sunday school, that it makes one expect a happily ever after, at least until one turns the page to the golden calf story. In reading Song of Songs on Passover, Jews are simply rehearsing, albeit in a very different key, the same story of passionate love, threatened, rescued, and ultimately consummated. It adds emotional charge to the celebration of Passover. And emotional charge, meaning romance, feeling loved, being loved by God, a pursuing God who rescues and saves and weds and purifies. I think we miss that. Most of us evangelical Christians miss that at Passover. But listen, it's not just for the Jews. It's the most ardent expression of God's love for the church, for you and me, if we're only willing and ready to hear it. And that's what we're about here in this series. So welcome to the Gospel Rant. So, quick review, the three reasons why I disagree with almost every Song of Song commentary out there. And this is why you've probably heard it taught differently, because, you know, this is how it's being taught in seminaries, this is what the commentaries are saying, right? Anyway, three reasons that I respectfully disagree is this. One. The prophetic marriage gospel motif, the trope, the metaphor of God finding a bride, marrying the bride to himself, and uh, purifying her, uh, that's in the Old and New Testament. It's everywhere. The Jews would have recognized that. The ancient Jews in exile would have recognized it. Uh, In the Roman occupation would have recognized it. God pursues an unworthy and unlikely bride, marries her, and he is covenanted to her. He loves her no matter what. And it's his love, then, that makes her a worthy bride. It's one of the most common redemptive tropes in the, in the in the Bible. All right. Second, the Jews, sometime during or after exile, began to read the Song of Songs during their Passover celebration. We just read a passage about that. Look, it's unimaginable that they understood it as an allegory. I mean that would have been very confusing at the Passover table, relating to Exodus, or as a marriage manual between two humans, a husband and a wife, or or a a book of love poetry meant for humans. Just it's a proclamation of the love of God for unlovable, unworthy people, and He makes it's His love that makes them lovable. And third, in the ancient Near East. The song fits into the well-accepted tradition and style of love songs, that genre, poetic love songs. And it looks like so many other street love songs that we have found throughout the Fertile Crescent, from Sumeria, a thousand years before the Song of Songs, Acadia, Babylon, Egypt. Regular folks would have recognized the poetry, the imagery. They would have likely sung it for generations all ages, by the way, so it makes so much sense that if God wants to communicate his love to real people, that he would do something like that. He would incarnate popular, familiar, well-known love ditties to communicate his love to, to regular people. It just makes sense to me, right? And when God incarnates such genres, I mean, think Proverbs, God incarnated Proverbs, Psalms, law, creation accounts, they become magical they become life-changing. They speak of him and his love for humanity. So how have we missed this? The Song of Songs picks up all three of those. Look, So in this podcast, I want to just look at the prologue of the Song of Songs. We're going to get into the text. The book is highly structured, ancient Hebrew poetry, so don't think roses are red uh, with a rhyming at the end of each line. Uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't seem to have that, but they have more structural things like parallelism, uh, repeated words and lines and phrases and images, and chiasms, another structural parallelism, and that's what we see in the Song of Songs quite a bit. So let me give you an idea. In the Song of Songs, imagine a pyramid, overarching structure, right, A a, a V. Think of it lying on its side, and, and the, the wide part of the pyramid is, is at one point the prologue, and it's balanced at the opposite end of the book by an epilogue. So you have a prologue parallel to an epilogue. Then movement one, parallel and balanced by movement number seven. Then movements two and six, three and five, and they're all literally moving to the point of the pyramid, which is movement four, the, amazing marriage celebration. One of the, some of the greatest love poetry ever penned between the king and this unlikely queen. Me, you, and even in that pinnacle, in that pyramid pinnacle at the tip, there's arguably a pinnacle verse of the entire collection of 117 verses, where the king is adoring his bride from head to toe, and he just seems to... Can't help himself but cry out, all oh, beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Yeah. And so the mystery, right, the, the thing that drives the plot, if you will, of the poetry, we know she is imperfect. perfect. She says so in the first movement. We're going to get to that. This is a scandalous marriage. She is unrighteous. He is righteous and it seems like everyone else can see it including we the readers except the king and in his eyes she's stunning he is tripping over himself in love of with her he's uh, he sees her as amazing and perfect right he can't love her any more than he does right now he can't love her any less far more than anyone else has ever loved her and frankly any a lot more than she's loved herself so Who does the king's love scandalize the most? You guessed it, it's her. She can't believe it. I mean, to speak modern neurology, she can't. Her midbrain, her critical inner voice says, she's not worth this, she's not that beautiful, the king deserves better. What are you thinking? He's going to find out, he's going to find those dark little secrets, and by the way, that's part of the driving plot, you'll see what I mean. So she struggles to believe it, to trust it, to let her emotional defenses down, I mean, if you can do that, and to safely enter his, his love. She just can't seem to do that until the very last movement. I, I remember teaching this one time, and a, a nice middle-aged lady just couldn't seem to get it. Um, if you knew her history, I think you would see why and know why. But <clears throat> she was ready to, to believe that God loves Israel, corporate, and God loves the corporate church, the historical church, but not her. Um, She just couldn't go there. You know what? She's not alone. In my 30 years of ministry, I've found that this is a common struggle. Um, Not just women, but definitely with women. The church is filled with Christians who believe Jesus loves them. They can check that box. Their prefrontal cortex goes, yep, Jesus loves me, the cross. They can answer that question affirmatively. But the rest of their brain, the brain that's in control of all of their emotions, their fear cycle... Uh, just doesn't believe it, and tells them regularly. So, you know what I'm saying. So you can believe your spouse loves you, your partner loves you, but if you don't experience that regularly, do they love you, and, and do you feel loved by them? So knowing it and experiencing it are two different things, right? Um, and a couple of reasons for that. All right, let me. This is this is worth going into in some depth. I want you to hear this. There's a couple of reasons you may not be feeling loved. One is maybe your spouse or partner is giving you a reason to say that. Maybe they're distracted or distant or uninvolved, or frankly, maybe they've grown tired of you or fallen out of love, right? Um, Or maybe you've done something to offend them. Maybe you've disappointed them, and so there's been a separation, and you're not experiencing their love. Or maybe it's in your brain. Uh, They may be pursuing you. They may be trying to love you, but your brain has checked out. Why? Why? It's so normal. Please hear this. No judgment. Nothing has hurt you more than love gone badly. Betrayal, abuse, affairs, lies, breakups, uh, abandonment, previous relationships, uh, all the way down to how your parents treated you your first year. And we even know now you're the third trimester when you were in your mother's womb. Uh, And so your brain puts up emotional boundaries to keep you from getting hurt again. It's how you're made. And those same boundaries can keep you from experiencing love. It's not being broken. It's just being human in a harmful world. So if you were orphaned or experienced abusive or indifferent or checked out parents or caregivers or abandonment or chronic abuse, bullying, racism, or pretty much any other ism, you, or you went through dating as a teenager, some of the most abusive stuff going on, uh, or you have a wide variety of mommy and daddy issues, Your brain may be stuck in what attachment theorists refer to as avoidant attachment style. I mean, you get the idea, right? Again, you're not broken. You're normal in your context with your history. And your brain is designed to keep you from getting hurt again. So it's hard for you to trust love, to trust lovers. Not free and embrace. You can't seem to let yourself go. Except during the euphoria of intimacy when dopamine and oxytocin just overwhelm your brain's cortisol drip and uh, you know the fear cycle but but you'll you notice the fears come back quick enough uh, maybe too quickly. So what can change things? I mean you can't just choose to stop that right you would have What can push against maybe decades of brain programming? well here's the gospel presentation the king's love is that powerful and not just, knowing about the king's love. Satan knows about it, but it hadn't done him any good at all. It's the experience of the love of the king that changes things, that rewires the brain and makes even the most abused and abandoned PTSD victim feel safe for a moment, accepted for a moment in the king's arms and kisses. It's so sophisticated. Paul got it in Ephesians 3. Listen again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. So this is a God-sourced power through his spirit in your inner being. It's inside of you. It's being uh, tunneled through to you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power. There's that power again together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, to get this love that is that surpasses knowledge, meaning it is bigger than your prefrontal cortex, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Man, that's a wholeness of of relationship, of love. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that's the third time his power is mentioned and considered necessary for me to experience his love. It's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. A power from God through the Holy Spirit by faith in our inner being in order that I can even begin to feel love. Otherwise, if I don't get that power, I can't feel the love. Well, Bride of Christ, why would you need power to experience the love of Christ? Don't you already have it? What it already purchased two thousand years ago and it's already yours. Yeah. It's your brain. It's broken. It's all twisted up, it's bruised. And the protective strongholds are preventing you from getting the good stuff. You're not alone, all of us. So you can't just turn a switch, a valve or some lever to to stop the, the The boundaries, it's largely subconscious and very powerful chemicals are running it. You can access, though, an intentional power from God, not within you. Isn't that good news? From God that is programmed, designed to fight against and tear down those strongholds, those protective strongholds. And that's the part of the gospel. And it's there. It's accessible to you because you're the bride of Christ. You're the bride of the great lover king. And all of us need that God sourced power to even begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for us. Because our brain has, over the years and decades, erected emotional and relational strongholds that have to be crushed, torn down, in order that it would stop pushing love and lovers away. Such good news for the beat up, the PTSD, the shamed, the unlovable, the frightened people, terrified people like us. We're not alone. We're not even in the minority. That is most of us to one degree or another. It's either that or denial, I say to people. And, you know, if, if you're listening to this, you're probably among the number uh, and recognize it, right? And you want more. Me too. Well, maybe you've been told that the problem is your faith. You just need more faith. Whatever that means. Or you just need to trust God more. Well, again, what muscle group are you going to do there? Or just stop being afraid of love. Just just do it. Again, but what about stop running? <sighs> listen, here's the great and good news. You can't do it. <laughs> this is your brain that's fighting against you, right? If you could have done it, you would have, right? I, I trust you for that. So listen. This is true for even the most abused and cautious and mistreated person out there, uh, chronic abuse. You can't do it either. They can't, and neither can you. But God's love, the King's love, can make you feel loved and can make you a lover of him again. It can make you trust. It can make you feel safe in his arms. Maybe for the first time in your life, God can do it. Christ can do it. The Holy Spirit can do it. In heaven, perfectly, but even now, a little or a lot is noticeable. That's the point, and I'll show you how. You've got this because you can, like me, you can access that kind of transforming power. This is not just some erudite theological philosophical nicety. This is good news. It's part of Christianity. You can begin to grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for you and for others, no matter how badly love has beat you up and held you down, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, no matter how much you've been loved or not loved. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives— Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. All right, so back to the prologue. I said I was going to get there. Well, you've seen the ads. You know, I used to weigh 500 pounds, but since I've been on this weight-begone products, I'm now the size I was when I was a teenager. Or I was failing math until I did Calculus R Us, and now I have offers from top Ivy League schools. It's the before and after sales technique approach. The prologue, versus 1 to 4, the very front of the book, begins with the after picture. Jewish poetry, what do you do? The queen. That's her testimony. It's a, it's her being ridiculously vulnerable in front of the world. She's being transparent. She's being, uh, let me see, embarrassingly uh, telling us about her desire to be with her lover, with a king. We, we get a snapshot of what she's feeling in this euphoric intimacy. She wants to feel more of his love. She wants to be more in his embrace. In fact, she pleads with him. He's right there to take her into his bedroom. Look, don't be offended by this. This is love poetry, ancient love poetry. This is beautiful stuff. They're already husband and wife, no matter what you've been told. They're husband and wife. And look, this is pure and a powerful love that has caused a transformation in the queen. I want you to remember this snapshot as we go through the Song of Songs. The very next movement, it'll shift from first person uh, praise God, I want the lover to, what's wrong with me? We'll see where she begins. We sh- we'll see where she comes from, um, where the king found her. And listen, she has changed. I'm telling you, this is a great picture of someone in the embrace of a lover or for our purposes, in the embrace of God. Are you with me? The biggest change, she trusts him. She trusts anybody. Uh, She she trusts his love. In fact, she's trusting love itself. She'll say it's, it's stronger than even death. Something's happened. I want that. I want that more. I suspect you do too. All right, just listen to her. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. No wonder everybody loves you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Then she switches to a royal we. It's fascinating. Well, why? And by the way, other commentators, if you go literal or of love poetry or allegorical, they kind of choke on this, but not if you understand the ancient love songs that were around there. The bride becomes the queen. For a moment, she she can speak royally, you know, the royal we. And so... We, We're used to it in other love poetry. And so she cries out, we rejoice and delight in you. I love it. We will praise your love more than wine, how right they are to adore you. That's everybody else. Do you hear the vulnerability? So next time we're going to jump into movement number one. You'll see the transition starting at verse five. I'm calling it the victim's tale or victim's story. The Queen is such a real believable 3D character. You could, you can imagine her in any major motion picture today. It's, she's relatable. She's tragic. She's, uh, I think, I think we'll resonate with her. She could be very much alive uh, in our families, our churches, our homes, our bars, our workplaces, alleyways, health clubs, mirrors. I think you'll see. Take heart, child of God.